the bronze snake. They travelled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread, there is no water, and we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on the pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. The second reading comes from John 3. Now there was a Pharisee man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter, they cannot enter into a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the so it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe how, that, how then... Oh. <laughs> And you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except to the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed. Mm. <laughs> 19, 18? I've lost it. <laughs> They have not condemned, they stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sorry. No, I, I love it when, you know, we have to slow down and actually look at the words more carefully. So God uses it all, right? Uh, thank you so much, Bev. Now, all of us have moments of realisation, moments... Um, defining moments really in our lives when we get something that we've never understood before. Now they can be trivial, like when you realise you've been singing the wrong song words, you know, all your life, like that line in Bohemian Rhapsody, saving his life from a warm sausage tea, instead of spare him his life from this monstrosity. Oh. I thought it was saving his life from this warm sausage tea. It never made sense. Yes. <laughs> now, if it's not song lines, it can be things more serious, like the time I was asked to write a sociology essay on euthanasia. It was 1998. I was 18. No one back then was talking about euthanasia. It was just not talked about. And this essay question had been dictated to me in my sociology tute. It wasn't written anywhere, so I wrote it down. I had no idea what euthanasia was. I asked one of the mature age students afterwards. He told me it was the voluntary choice of people to end their lives. It sounded heavy. I still had no idea, but what was in the news at that time was stories of Japanese students who were under so much pressure in their life that they were throwing themselves off buildings to end their lives. So that made sense to me. Youth in Asia. <laughs> Ending that. So, so I did my research and I wrote my essay and I handed it in. And you can just imagine the sort of look on my face the next week in class when the essays were returned and the topic was discussed. And then I realized that euthanasia didn't really mean youth in Asia. I've since discovered that my mistake is now a meme. Uh, there you go. Obviously, I'm not the only one. So if you've wanted a definition of mercy, it was that I got a pass. <laughs> because I actually answered the question I wrote down. So there you go. Um, well, life is full of moments of realizations, right? Some of them funny, many of them deep. Like the first time we realised our parents were not superheroes, but flawed and needed our forgiveness. That's never happened. David's never had that moment. You two need to talk afterwards, right? Or when we first realised that we're not immortal and that we're going to die and that life, in fact, is very fragile. How about this one? When you first realised, you deeply, deeply realised that the God of heaven loved you, and still does. 
It's a statement, God is love, God loves the world, that we hear so often, it just washes over us and it can morph into this vague thought that the God who is out there is just, just feels love for every single thing all the time, permanently, and he could never do anything but forgive and embrace everyone. After all, the Bible says God is love. But then, of course, in your life, things happen. And you see things that have happened, not good things. And there's, in your life, sin you can't forgive or you can't accept that you're forgiven of. Or then there may be suffering you experience and then you wonder whether it's really true. Does the Lord God truly love me? Really? Maybe you wonder deep down whether anyone really loves you at all. And if you doubt whether any person could love you, and then how then could the Lord love me? And then, of course, we come to a book like Numbers, <laughs> where God seems to be so angry, not loving at all. Take, for example, last week's story of Korah's rebellion. I remember um, reading this with my kids. Our, our, this was our family practiced after dinner. We'd open the Bibles, we'd read the next bit. We were going through the book of Numbers. On the particular day that last week's story came up of the earth opening and swallowing Korah with his little ones. Narelle's mum was staying with us and she listened and afterwards she spoke to me and said, I don't think you should read stories like that to the children. And I said, why? And she said, well, I don't think it's very Christian. <laughs> now, we had a conversation, of course, but <laughs> you do understand her objection. On the face of it, those stories Paint God as very unloving, very different to the God that Jesus spoke about, angry. You contrast that with this verse like John 3.16, which has provided so much assurance to so many, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Ian Bartlett was a former trustee of Trinity Church who attended the 7 p.m. gathering in the city for 51 years. Right, he's now with the Lord, uh, but he was a friend. And he told me that he first really understood God's love when a minister at church put up John 3.16 and told him, take out the word world and put in your name. For God so loved Ian that he gave his only son. And for Ian, that was the life-changing moment when he understood God's great love for him. So you've got John 3.16 and the book of Numbers. We know it's the same God, but we struggle to put it together. And that difficulty, can I say, gives rise to doubt, where we wonder, is it the case that the God of the Bible truly does love me, or is he simply angry? Well, if you've ever wondered that and wrestled with it, good news, because Jesus, in John 3, says that if you really want to understand God's love, guess what? The place to go is the book of Numbers. All right, what am I talking about? Okay, John 3.16, what is the first word in that verse? For. Now, most of us just gloss over that. To most of us, it's like the opening of inverted commas. You know, about to say something. For God so loved the world. And we just, we, we don't think about it. 
But for, that word for, is a connecting word and it connects what Jesus says in verse 16 with what he has just said just before. And what he's just said before is in fact his summary of the story from the book of Numbers, the story about the snake in the desert. He says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And then he explains, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You see how he connects it? According to Jesus, that story in the book of Numbers helps us understand God's love. In fact, according to Jesus, because he had lots of stories to choose from, he chose this one, and there's therefore no better place to understand God's love than this story in the book of Numbers. Are you interested? Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us to understand, to see things we've never seen before. Help us, by your Holy Spirit, to deeply and more deeper, uh, deeply understand your great love for us and therefore what we must do. Amen. So our task today is very simple, and that's to follow Jesus as he explains God's love using the book of Numbers. Let's begin with John 3.16. Okay. Now, what's the biggest word? If you've done this before, I apologize. I think we did this last year, but for the rest of us, have a look at the verse and find what do you think is the biggest word in that sentence? Okay. What would you say is the biggest word? If you just were to read through it and think. You might say it's the word world or eternal. They're very big words, aren't they, in that sentence? Or you might say it's the word perish. That's a very big word. Or maybe when you think about it, it's the word loved or gave. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Or maybe it's the word whoever. Whoever believes, because that talks about the scope, right, of, of what's available to people. Or it's the word life, which you, when you place next to the word perish, is a wonderfully big word, right? Now the truth is that the verse is packed full of many big words, but for my money, the biggest words are in fact the smallest ones. For, so and in. They may be small words, but I hope you'll see, I think they're in fact the biggest. Let's start with the first word, for. Jesus joins together verse 16 with the verses before it. In the verses before, there Jesus draws this parallel with the story of the snake on the pole in the desert and then his death on the cross. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. All right, so far so good. Both involve something or someone being lifted up on, the, on a pole. <laughs> What's the significance? Well, the significance is that where people were perishing, God provided a way out so that they didn't need to perish. So it begins with this fact that people are perishing. And people are perishing. That's the thing, the point that Jesus wants to get us to get from the story in Numbers. It's, it's the obvious starting point, but the problem is that it's not obvious for us. But just because something's not obvious doesn't mean it's not true. It is true, look again at verse 16, 
That's what's assumed about us. See, according to Jesus in verse 16, what is the default spiritual state of every person in the world? Perishing, right? Now the trouble is we don't believe it, do we, really? When you go to the Adelaide Oval, do you look around and does it seem to you like everyone in that stadium is perishing? I suppose you'll say whether it depends if they're Ports or Crows supporters, doesn't it? <laughs> when you go to the Adelaide show and you pass people by, do you think there goes another person who I can see is perishing? They have that zombie look about it. I mean, you might think about it, the haunted house sort of, you know, ride, but not, not elsewhere, no. Because we don't see it and we don't want to believe it. When we think of that word perishing, we get maybe images of capsized boats in the Mediterranean with drowning people and bodies sort of floating and terrible things like that. Or maybe people trapped in a burning house with no way out. And even if we're not perfect to us, it doesn't seem that dire. We're still alive, aren't we? And when there's life, there's hope. It doesn't seem like we're perishing. And that's why it's very, very helpful for us that Jesus takes us to numbers and why that story is so helpful. Because here is a story in the book of Numbers where we can see that people really are perishing, because they were. Here's the Israelites going on and on again, again, like a scratched record, complaining. Boy, it must be painful to listen to, to the Lord. Complaining, accusing God and Moses of genocide again. Here we go. Think, oh, don't do it again. All right. So the Lord sends venomous snakes among them. They bite the people and many Israelites died. Now imagine you're an Israelite. You've complained. Now you've been bitten. And the venom of that viper is now working its way through you. That The toxins are taking effect. You're beginning to get feverish. You're beginning to shake. There's someone else already in your tent who's died. Maybe a family member. People around you. They're already on the way out. And you know that you're perishing at that point. Jesus says, that's you. That's me. That's us spiritually. We are under God's wrath. We are perishing. Some of us have been coming to church for years but have never accepted Christ in their life. Not truly. You know, you believe things about him. But you actually haven't taken that conscious, deliberate step of trusting him. Turning to him. Looking to him. You are like the Israelite convulsing on the floor with snake venom and just knowing you're gonna die. It's only a matter of time. But here's the marvelous thing in the story that God's provided a way out. He's provided a way for you to be healed, to live. The Son of Man lifted up. Just as the snake that Moses made was lifted up, Jesus says, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him, the Son of Man lifted up. I think this is a wonderful thing because this reveals God's heart towards us. Now maybe you have written God off because you've read the Old Testament and you thought there, the Lord, he's all anger, he's no love. Well, guess what? A God who is no love, he would have never provided a way out in that story in Numbers, but he did. Maybe you've written off God because you just think he's all love and no anger, so no need to take him seriously. 
Well, that God, frankly, is worse because there is a God who never cares about what is wrong with the world or the terrible things that people do. A God who never gets angry is a God who never loves. And that's a frightening thought. Here is a God who, yes, is angry, but who provides a way out. Now, why? Is God simply motivated by pity? Pity for people, the Israelites, pity for us. To God, is it the case that you and I are just like some poor animal limping along who needs our help, an animal stuck in mud in the rising floodwaters who needs saving? Or, you know, is it pity that motivates the Lord to offer up a, a branch to us to climb to safety? It's not pity. Jesus explains and he uses the next small word that is big. So. It's not pity, it's love for God so loved the world. That's what was driving him. There's a big difference between pity and love. I can be moved out of pity to alleviate someone else's sufferings. I can see something on my screen and give money to try and help someone in need. But that's a very different thing to me, loving them and then wanting an ongoing relationship with that person. Right? That's very different. But that is precisely what God wants. That's what e the words eternal life mean. John 17. This is eternal life, says Jesus, that they may know you. He's speaking relationally. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life means relationship with God. So in numbers, you see, it's not, it's not anger, but it's love. It's not pity. It's love that moved God to instruct Moses to put that snake up on the pole. He didn't just want to save the Israelites from dying. He wanted to have a relationship with them based on him, them trusting him. Now, of course, if God's motivated by love, we say, well, big deal. There's so much love in the world, isn't it? We all have a capacity to love that's what makes the world great. And then we think, well, why did Jesus go on about this? Well, to answer the question, what's the measure of God's love for us? And it comes out in that little word, so. God so loved the world. There's a lot packed into that little word, so. You could have left it out. God loved the world. God so loved the world. If you have a child, you'll know you'll do anything for them. I was in our home group, uh, growth group this uh, year and one time the guys were gathered around the table, we were talking and one of them said, yeah, I love my child. I'd do anything for them. I'd die for them. And we all nodded and went, yep, you just would. You just would. So for God to give up his son, we think, how's that any different? Well, for God, to give up his son, that's bigger than us. Bigger than we can grasp. Jesus, the son of God, was no ordinary son. He's described as the one and only son of God himself. What does that mean? Before he was born, Jesus existed. He didn't have a name, but the son existed. He was with the father from eternity. They made the world together. 
They span the universe into existence. They delighted in one another. And it's not that they needed us. It's not that they were lonely beforehand. They had one another and the Spirit. Three persons, one God. And then to their delight, they made us in their image. But they didn't need us. The Son enjoyed a unique relationship with the Father. And we see it in the Gospels, in the three times when God spoke out audibly from heaven. Each time, it's the Father's heart bursting in pride for his Son. So at Jesus' baptism, the Father exclaims from heaven, so everyone can know, this is my Son, whom I love, and with him, I am well pleased, it's, it's literally Eudokia. It's I take delight, I am just flowing over with joy at him. And then on the mountain where Jesus is transfigured and he's seen in his heavenly glory, his face shines like the sun, his clothes become white like light. Moses and Elijah are there, these great Old Testament figures, and they're with Peter and James and John. To them, the father exclaims, this is my son. Don't pay attention to Moses and Elijah. This is my son, whom I love, and with him I take delight. Listen to him. And then when Jesus realized that the hour had come for him to go to the cross, and he, he prayed selflessly at that moment that, Father, glorify your name. Again, the Father speaks from heaven, and he's just full of pride for his son. I'll do it. I'll do it again. God the Father, he's just so enraptured with his son, he would have given his son anything. Anything he asked. Except, of course, that one time when he didn't. You remember the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before Jesus died? The Son of God on his knees begging, sweat pouring out him like drops of blood. He's in anguish. And he's pouring out his heart to his father, laying out his needs. Of course, he'd known, he'd known what God's, God's plan was, to suffer for the sins of the world at the cross. He knew that. But face to face with that moment, it's really hard. And frankly, he doesn't want to go through with it. It wasn't the losing of his life. It's what went with that. The fact that in losing his life, he would be drinking the cup of God's wrath that the world deserved. And three times, therefore, he, when he's praying, he begs the Father, initially, that if there was another way, if possible, this cup of wrath would be taken from him. Now, here is the moment, of course, for the Father to listen to his son, because not only... Here was his precious son asking his father for what he most desperately wanted. Yet, remember the father's heart of pride for his son? Three times he hears his son selflessly add, after his petition, the words, yet not what I will, but what you will. Well, I'll tell you what, if the father, father's heart could have burst any more with pride for his son, his heart would have been exploding at that moment which would have only increased the father's desire to give his son what he was most earnestly begging for. And yet, of course, he didn't. The father in Gethsemane stayed silent. Why? Jesus explains. 
because he so loved the world that instead of saying yes to his son's heartfelt plea, he so loved the world that he had his son give up his life and drink that cup of wrath. To go to the cross to give the world a way out, to give you a way out. You see, when we know that we are perishing and we realise the cost the Father provided to get a way out, and we begin to grasp that because we've glimpsed the extent of his love for his son, we can't properly understand that, but we've begun to understand. And then we realise that at that moment, in one respect, you could say he did love us more than his son because he didn't give his son what he wanted. He chose the world instead. Then we begin to get a measure for how much God loves you. You were perishing. And to rescue you, he gave up the one most precious to him. He so loved the world. He so loved you. Well, of course, you realize, you, each of us, we do need to respond to this. What must I do? What must you do? And now we come to the last big small word, in. Jesus says you've got to believe in the Son. See, from verse 16, what's the difference between those who are saved and those who perish? It's quite simply those who choose to believe in him, isn't it? In the Son, that's the way out. And it's not an option. We think, but doesn't God love the world? He does. So we think if God loves the world, won't the world completely be saved? They won't. Look at verse 18. Whoever believes in him, this is Jesus speaking, is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. We think that sounds so harsh. It doesn't sound harsh when you know you're perishing already and there's one way out, but you've said no to it. All right? God's love for the world and him providing a way out Sorry, God's love for the world is him providing a way out for everybody. It's open to everyone, regardless of nationality, regardless of language, regardless of background, regardless of religious belief. It's open to everyone who turns to him and believes in the Son. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save save the world through him. What's required is the same for everyone, and that's belief in something which in one sense is totally bizarre, crazy. Think back to that story in Numbers. If you were a snake-bitten, toxin-loaded, venom-coursing Israelite, right, with not long to live, what you need at that point is medicine. You need snake anti-venom, snake serum, right? That's what you need to be administered to you to save your life. But instead, oh no, you're told, look at that thing up on a pole way over there that has no direct connection to your body or the toxin in your veins, okay? Look at that thing and guess what? You just need to look at it and you'll be saved. That is completely bizarre. 
I mean, surely you'd need a potion to drink. How is looking at something raised up on a pole going to make you well? And yet that's the instruction from the Lord. If you're going to listen to it and do it, and you've got to look at the, uh, the pole, uh, sorry, look at what the Lord requires. It's faith in this bizarre way to be saved. Faith to say, I'll believe, I'll do it. Same with us. Has it ever occurred to you that when you're told believe in Jesus and you'll be saved, that's bizarre? Because he did live a long time ago, didn't he? On the other side of the planet. And you're told, guess what? The fact that someone who lived on the other side of the planet 2,000 years ago and was raised up for a terrible death, you've just got to look to him and you'll be saved. That somehow alters your spiritual standing with God, alters your destiny forever, alters your status with God. That doesn't, doesn't that occur to you that it's a little bizarre? You add to that the strangeness of the one we're to look at on the pole. The Israelites, get this, they have to look at the image of a snake. You've got to believe in a serpent. Isn't that strange to you? Maybe we think if Moses had, or if the Lord had told Moses, just make an image of an angel, stick that up on a pole, like our Christmas trees, right? Just angel on the top. That would be more sensible to us. But a serpent. Why a serpent? Usually when we think of a serpent, we think Satan. But think about the context, right? The story. Here, the serpent is what God sent to bring judgment on the people. The Lord told Moses to make an image of the agent of God's judgment on you. Believe in that, the sort of judgment, the, the agent of judgment, and you'll be saved. That, I mean, that even gets more bizarre, doesn't it? A very unlikely saviour. Well, it's the same with Jesus. Do you see how he describes himself? Did you notice it? He describes himself as the son of man. Why does Jesus, in describing this story, describe and drawing the connection between numbers and himself, why does he describe himself as the son of man? It's not accidental. He's very deliberate. In the Bible, that title, the son of man, refers to the judge at the end of time. Daniel chapter 7. Or you could go to somewhere like the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25. Where Jesus says, the son of man will come in his glory with all his powerful angels. He will sit on his throne. The nations will be gathered before him. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And to those on his right, he'll say, come, receive the inheritance prepared for you and the angels since the creation of the world. And to those on his left, he'll say, depart, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Can you imagine a scene more frightening, more awesome, more, more significant? And who is it that's calling the shots? It's the Son of Man. In John 3.14, he's saying, just as Moses lifted up an image of the agent of judgment against the Israelites... And just as those who looked to it in faith were saved, so he, the agent of God's judgment, the son of man, he is going to now be lifted up so that those who look to him, the judge, crucified, will be saved. The one, in other words, who will be your end time judge has just stepped in for you to become your savior. 
And here, friends, it's bizarre, but here is the genius of the cross. If you know that the one who will ultimately be your judge is also the one who at the same time has stepped in for you to become your savior, you have no fear of judgment. Imagine for a moment a different scenario. Imagine for a moment that God sent Jesus to be your savior, but someone else was your judge. Well, how would you know for certain that even though you were told that you were saved by Jesus, you ultimately wouldn't be rejected by the other one who would be your judge on the last day? I was explaining it this week and they went, oh, that's like Centrelink. <laughs> you know, you ring up, you spend hours on the phone waiting and you finally get through and you talk to someone, you lay it all out and they say, oh yeah, good news, blah, 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 blah. And then a letter comes and it confirms the opposite. And then you get on the phone again and you speak to a different person who contradicts what was said the first time. You think, I just wish I spoke to the same person, right? Here's the beauty of the cross. The one who will be your judge was raised up on the cross to be your savior, meaning that if you look to him in faith, if you believe in him, you're saved indeed. No fear, no uncertainty eternal life. So, if we're convulsing Israelites, bitten by vipers, with not long to live, what must we do? Well, we must turn and look to the one raised up for us. We must believe in God's Son. Now, many people here have taken a step, but some I know have been coming for years. They've grown up in this church. They've never taken that step you have never actively, consciously decided to turn and put your faith in Jesus. You are still the Israelite who is perishing and not looking. I want to say you need to decide to be that Israelite who looks to the one raised up for you. You turn and you look to him who was raised up for you to save you and you look in faith and you believe him. I'm going to give you a chance to do that now, to own the reality that you're perishing and to turn and to look to Jesus, the Son of Man, your end times judge who took the judgment for you on the cross to save you. And why not, not out of pity, that's not what's driving God to do this, it was out of God's deep, deep love for you. That's what drove him to do that. I'm gonna pause just for a moment and allow you to pray and then I'm gonna lead us in prayer. And if you would like to pray with me using my words, just pray them with me and say amen. loving Father in heaven, thank you for what Jesus has told us and now I realize things that I hadn't, well I'd known but I hadn't realized before properly, not deeply, not truly. I'm perishing. 
I can't pretend I'm not. Forgive me for doing so. Forgive me for thinking that things are all right when they're not. Forgive me for thinking or making you out to be a big Santa Claus that I never need to take seriously. But I thank you so much that you so loved me that you sent your son. And I praise you that even though I've known he's died for me before, but I've ignored it. And even though it's bizarre, thank you that the one who will be my judge died for me to become my savior. And so now I look to him and I believe in him, I trust in him. And I hand over the control of my life to him because I'm safe with him and there's no one who loves me more. Our loving Father, may you forgive what is past and help me from this moment to serve you and to live a new life with you. And I receive the eternal life you've offered and I now want to begin properly my relationship with you. So please help me to do it, but I thank you that I do not need to be afraid anymore because you love me. And Jesus, your son, was lifted up for me. Amen. If that is you, then I would encourage you to go home and to pray again. Um, not because God didn't hear you that time, uh, but to give thanks to God for what you've realized today. And then my encouragement would be, tell one person, tell one person who you know will be able to help you in the next steps.